everybody. It is episode 80 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is patching into me from Colorado. Hey, Steve. Hello, podcast world. We are, as always, excited, as we are always excited about our guests, we're super excited about our guest today. We've got Jay Dishery joining us, author of Running Rewired and Anatomy of Runners, two amazing books that are pretty much must-reads on my list for running books if you're going to get out there and get educated on our sport. So we're super excited to have Jay patching into us from Bend, Oregon, here in just a second. He is an expert on running biomechanics and basically helping you build an athlete's body that will hopefully be more resistant to injury and ultimately stronger and faster too. So we'll get to a little longer intro on Jay in just a second. As we always do, we've got some intro topics and the first is going to be a little bit of a redux on our last episode, episode 79 on listener questions. I got a couple of emails that I think are interesting afterwards. First of all, one from Mary Margaret herself, who asked or had our first question on that episode where she was asking about trusting a slower long run paced. And she wrote me an email back with the subject line after I guaranteed her her time in Twin Cities. The subject line said, Mary Margaret is freaking out. (laughs) <laughs> so she was uh she was freaking out by the mention and i think perhaps by the slight bit of pressure that now resides on her twin cities race well that's and how so, we roll yeah so i've been i've been rolling i've been going back and forth a little bit with her this week she shared her training program with me and a few other things about what she's doing in her program and so the net of that Steve, is that we're going to bring Mary Margaret on the show. Oh, and, sweet. And we're awesome. going to basically help coach her up in the early stages of her prep for Twin Cities, offer some tweaks on her schedule, some tips and advice going into this training block so that she can get that sub four. So stay tuned for that episode. Mary Margaret will be joining us. And hopefully that'll be after she's done freaking out and is a little calmer and ready, but that'll be fun and exciting to have her on, especially given the guarantee that I put out there of paying for her race entry. You and I both will pay her money for her race entry if she can't get the sub four following our principles. So that's, so that's coming. Stay tuned in a few, and we'll have that up in a few episodes. And then I got an email from a, a person who who I won't name, who trains with Jing Wan. Our second question, our second listener question from last episode. And you know, she had, she was as a reminder, the listener who had a stress fracture, who re-injured that stress fracture in Boston and is trying to get healthy. We had suggested to Jing Wan that she'd lay off of any activity for two to three weeks before resuming some cross training and giving herself two to three months before she resumed running, resumed running. And so I got an email from a, an unnamed anonymous source from her running group who says, call out Jing Wan, please. I saw her at the pool this morning, not following your advice. Make sure to give her some shit if you like. So there you go, Jing Wan. You have been ratted out and narked upon by an unnamed source in your training program. And 
who I'm sure she could probably figure out who it is. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. But we would highly suggest that you do two weeks to three weeks with no activity, including swimming, before you jump back in. And I think this episode for you from Jay has some really relevant points too. So also tune in to the latter half of this episode because Jay makes some references to coming back from injury and what matters when we do that. So there you go. Quick redux on our listener questions episode, episode 79. Check that out if you haven't already. And we'll look forward to having Mary Margaret on. And if there are any other narcs watching Jing Wan, please do report back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So second topic, and this goes back to a prediction you made Steve earlier this year when we did our three picks or three predictions for outdoor track. One of them you said was that Mondo Duplantis, the young high school age pole vaulter from Louisiana, but he's a Swedish athlete with, with a Swedish mom. He isn't quite meeting your prediction yet, but he did get a big win in Oslo at the diamond league meet in the pole vault to best Sam Kendricks, U.S. world champion, and and, and win a Diamond League meet at the age of, I think he's 19? Yep. I think so huge, Actually, huge win. He might still be in high school. But I think not. he just graduated, okay. if I'm not That's mistaken. Right. But anyway, 18 or 19, yep. won a Diamond League pole vaulting meet in Oslo against the world champion. So hasn't beaten the world record holder yet, the French La Villani, but he got a big, big victory there in Oslo and did it in his home, using that in quotes, country of Sweden, where he will be competing on the international stage. So your your prediction, although not 100%, is looking better and better. What do you think about his result there, Steve? I mean, I'm still in the hunt, right? I still got time, so it's a good thing. I think at the end of the day, you know, I remember we got a, some some feedback from somebody who was a little grumpy about us talking about pole vaulters. And what I want to say to him is kiss my lily white ass because, look, this guy's the real deal. He's been the real deal for a long time. And he is going to be someone who actually can take our sport and bring it to ESPNs of the world. And um, so I'm, I'm super excited because I think this kid is just what we need in the U.S. Even though he's jumping for Sweden, I think he is um, – He's got the right stuff to make people get excited about our sport. So that's what the most important thing to me is about talking about all this stuff, about all these elite athletes. I am a fanboy, but I'm also looking for a larger, bigger playing field for our absolutely world-class athletes on the U.S., in the U.S., and looking forward to um, – I, I just looking forward to continuing to watch Mondo continue to crush it. Plus, with a name like Mondo, how can you go wrong? The thing that's just impressive to me is that the stage did not seem too big for him. I mean, he's got a big personality, but he's also fearless. And to be able to do what he did with some pressure on him, given that he was competing in front of his home country fans, he was able to deliver. And at that age, to do that, it's impressive. Absolutely. The young gun. So we will be watching Mondo. Unfortunately, we don't get to see him in any world international championship 
meets this year, but we will be looking forward to see how he does next year at the World Championships, competing for Sweden, and then, of course, in 2020 for the Olympics. So next thing and we have to talk about is the Grandma's Marathon and Half Marathon that just went off this past weekend. We had some rogues there. I had a couple of athletes in my group that I've got to give shout-outs to. Adi, who ran a personal best and Boston qualifier. And then another guy, Brent, who ran a 35-minute PR. Adi's been working for that one for a while, huh? He has. Now, he didn't get the buffer to the standard that he wanted, but he still got his first BQ, a six-minute PR. And and then my other athlete, Brent, had a 35-minute PR with a really solid negative split. So congrats to those two from my group. We had other rogues representing. Okay, Got a couple a of five minute PR. That's yes, good. one of your athletes yeah. or then my teammates, Carrie Heiner. Yeah. Big results there for rogues. We also have a couple of elite results to talk about. I'm gonna start with Kara Goucher, who was in the field in the half. She ran a one eighteen in her hometown of Duluth, Minnesota. Not an impressive result for her, although I know she had downplayed her potential result there, saying that this was more of a fun race in her hometown than it was something she where she was trying to run a certain time. She mentioned afterwards, without being specific, that she's been dealing with a lot of stress recently. And, and I think this is where the, the USATF and USADA doping investigation has heated up, at least around the Houston endocrinologist who is now been charged with official doping violations. I believe Kara has been in and around those proceedings, potentially testifying with her husband, Adam. And so she referenced a personal matter that will be resolved within a month that, and I think she was alluding to that. She also alluded to the fact that she'd like to make a world championship team for the marathon next year, and then potentially turn to an ultra marathoning career what do you think of Kara's potential at this stage in the marathon? Do you think she can make another world champ team? No. And I also, <laughs> I don't think she can. I think that, uh, I mean, we're just about to talk about the woman who just won that race, Kellen Taylor, who is like the fourth or fifth best American at this point in time. No, she can't. I mean, she's going to have, the only way she could do it is if on the streets of, Atlanta, some weird, crazy, wacky shit happens and something plays out in a weird way than we expect. Now, it doesn't mean that she won't get, that she couldn't. I just don't think it's likely. So the other thing that, Chris, that really frustrates me, and and I'm just going to be – I really am a big Kara Goucher fan. But this happens with a lot of elite athletes, a lot of elite marathoners. They think that they're just going to go jump into some ultras and be some fucking badasses. People – I mean, it is a completely different sport. It requires a completely different mindset, a way, different way of training, a different way of looking at the world. It takes, and if you're going to do it on the trails, good luck. That is a, a it just, it's just kind of like the guys 
it just makes me feel like there's a lot of disrespect for what happens in the ultra world. And these people are really, really good at what they do. And just because you're a fast marathoner doesn't make you a great ultra marathoner. There's a whole lot of other things going on in that, in that bivouac that is going to be necessary. Now, she's lived in Boulder for a very long time, and she lived in Portland for a very long time. Lots of really good, nice trails there. She may be a rock star trail runner. She may be able to do that, and she may have the proprioception necessary to be great at it. I may be wrong about it, but just to hear her say that and for other people to sort of coordinate her in some kind of, oh, she's going to be a great ultra runner. I don't think so. I, I will, I will, I would say there's a 50 50 chance that she'll be any good at the ultra marathon. That's not like a just roll up and show up and kick everybody's ass. So, anyway, now that I got that off my chest, I still really do like Kara Goucher. I just think that <laughs> I don't have a chance to make an Olympic team, in my opinion, again. And I think that, uh, I mean, 118, I mean, I don't care how much stress is going on in your life. And ultimately, that that actually exudes to me a little bit of a poor choice also about why did she even get on the starting line if she was going to run 118. 118 is not good for an elite-level marathoner. Um, and the weather, as we saw there, was not bad. So um, I don't know. I don't think it's – I think she's uh, grasping at straws. And, um, you know, it, maybe she needs to move on to other things. And if it's the ultra, I'll wait to see the results before I make any coronation. <laughs> the way a couple notes there one is that we're not talking about atlanta she hasn't mentioned the olympics that's not in play but she did say she wanted to to make the the world championship marathon team next year in 2019 well, there is a chance for that because- which isn't which doesn't mean she has to compete it just means she has to be on a list of of times and you know basically have one of the faster times uh, from an american in 20 i don't know what this the window is probably 2018 to early 2019 and and then be willing to go and do it which sometimes is a question mark at least at the very top of the sport because you lose a big payday if you go do a world championship meet or a marathon instead of racing at chicago berlin or any of the other fall races so usatf selector We've got. Well, so they would they would only select her at this point if she ran a marathon this year and actually had a decent time. <laughs> I mean, right now she doesn't have that, right? I mean, last time she ran a marathon was the trials in 2016, and her time was really decent and impressive. There, she got fourth that day, but she hasn't, because of knee issues, she hasn't towed the line since then in the marathon. So at this point, they wouldn't. Now she's alluding to the fact that she's looking at a December marathon. We don't know what that means or what that is. You know what that means. <laughs> okay. Where's she so, running? Where's she running? She's running CIM. Okay, fair enough. I hadn't even thought about that, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, that's that would be a smart place to do it. I mean, I think it's the only place in December, really, that people are, I mean. And it, I mean, is that, is that the U.S. champs again? Uh-huh. Okay, so there you go. So that would, I mean, if, so if you make it there and you run it, if you run a top, if you finish top three there and run a decent time, then then they would have to consider her, right? I believe so. But but the, at this point, she's two years removed from a marathon at all, right? Right. She's been dealing with knee, knee injuries. She's had, I believe, a couple of knee surgeries at this point. We know that her knees are essentially beyond repair in terms of really being what they were before according to her own words so i do think it's going to be difficult for her to get back to 
where she was. Now she read, she said that she would have dropped out of this race if she, if, if she wasn't racing in her hometown. So basically she did it simply to show up for her fans in her hometown. And so I get that at some level, but you ask a reasonable question. Why even, why even do it? if you're going to run a 118 and and the local fans would have understood, especially if she'd showed up, hung out at the expo, signed autographs and kissed babies, they would have been okay. I think not having her between the security fencing on the, the next day, but I tend to agree with you. I, I don't think she can make a world team at this point. There is a podcast of her with Nicole DeBoom, which I think is really fascinating I'd link to it in the show notes. I think Nicole DeBoom did a really good job of of drilling way deep with Kara on some very personal things, on life, on running, on how she views the world. And it just seemed to me, the vibe I got from listening to that podcast was that Kara, in her mind and with her soul, had essentially moved beyond her elite days. You know, there's... As an elite athlete, you have to be 100% invested in being at the top of your sport in order to be at the top of your sport, especially in today's world as a female distance runner where there's so many women kicking ass. You have to be 100% invested. And not that Kara wasn't before, but I got the sense that she's not anymore, that there are other things that are more important, and rightly so. She has a son, age seven. She's got other things going on in her life. And so it and she's what 40 now i think so it completely makes sense and she's seen life after the sport she knows that she has a place in it she knows that she can make a living that way contributing in other ways so she's no longer viewing distance running as the thing the number one thing in her life there are other priorities which is completely fine i just don't think you can make a world team with that psyche with that mentality especially in today's female distance running world in the U S where you have so many people kicking ass. So, so I don't think that's realistic. And at some level I want for her, she says that she'll never retire that basically, you know, she'll move into ultras maybe and do some other things, but she's never going to have some big retirement announcement because running, running is such a part of her life. But I almost feel like she would just do that (laughs) or at least in her head, maybe just, step off and say, look, it's, it's done. I'm beyond it. But I understand that that's a difficult decision and, and I can't put myself in the place of that decision. So I'm not going to judge it. It's just, it's hard to see her getting back to that level, being two years removed now from having a marathon time that would qualify for world champs. As it relates to ultras, you know, best there, You've, you've coached several elite level runners that thought they could make the leap there and have success and that struggled because it is a different game. I get the sense from Kara that she doesn't necessarily want to compete at a high level in the ultra world. She just wants to finish maybe a 50 mile or a hundred mile and kind of enjoy oh, the process of it. Uh, that's so, uh, so I, that's, I that's my read. I think some people are projecting onto her that, well, she could compete there. I think, I think that's external pressure from others saying oh well if you're going to do it you might as well try to win i don't think that's kara i think kara wants to just enjoy it when she makes that step so i wouldn't throw stones at her for that i would throw stones at the rest of the world that's that's trying to write that narrative well then i take it back if that's the case but 
and I, but I do, but I, I've seen as sweet and as nice and as amazing a person as, as Kara is, I still see her as someone who might think it was just, just a thing. So anyway, if I'm wrong, Kara, and you listen to us still, which I doubt you do, then you can come on and tell us that I'm all wrong. I'm happy to hear it. To get her back on again, get to talk to her for another 20 minutes about any topic, I'd be, I'd be, I'm damn, I'm on for that because she is so much fun to talk to. <laughs> yeah, we do need to get her back on. But yeah, we're huge fans of Karen, hope for the best, and certainly hope for resolution as it relates to the doping scandal. I have a feeling that it won't be done in a month as she's hoping. I think there's a lot more to write in that saga, but that's a topic for another day. We also have to talk about Kellen Taylor's result, as you alluded to, in the marathon. She won the marathon in a 2.24. I believe she won by six minutes. Basically running a solo 2.24, 30 32nd negative split to become now the seventh fastest American in or of all time in the marathon. That's still a couple minutes behind the next one on the list, which is Des in sixth. But she's now in company that includes Des Linden, Shalane Flanagan, Jordan Hesse, Joan Benoit Samuelson, Dina Castor, and Amy Hastings Crack. That's quite a list. And so here we had Ben Rosario's athlete having the breakthrough that they've been expecting for her. What'd you make of Kellen's result? We've been calling this for yep. a while. You know, this is something we we knew was coming based on her, the aggressive style of racing that she runs, way, the way she races, how aggressive she is, how tough she is when the going gets tough. And, um, and I just think that she's got the it factor. And I put her in as a dark horse to make a team. I mean, because I think that things get weird in races and the kind of skill set that Kellen Taylor has is the thing that makes, she reminds me, a lot of Des and she's a little younger than Des and she's still missing that big race for her to come out and show the world. This was solid, but it's grandma's and grandma's doesn't have the same cachet as it used to have 10, 15 years ago. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what she does. This was a huge performance from her. One we've been thinking was going to happen for a while and I couldn't be happier to see this. I mean, and again though, Chris, I'm going to go back to the care thing about making a world team. Just li that list you just described. They're all still competing. <laughs> almost all those women they're still competing so how is that going to happen unless none of them want to run a world championship and who wouldn't want to make a world championship team so anyway yeah so we'll we'll see but if you look at who might be on the olympic trial starting line of that list certainly you know des has said she wants to be there at least at this stage jordan has obviously will be there amy hastings craig has talked about wanting to be there but we know joan bonnet won't be there dina won't be there at least she might be there, but she won't be competing for the for the top three. And then Shalane is a big question mark. So that would put her fourth on the list of probable starts on that Olympic trial starting line. And as we know, with the marathon, with injury and with chaos that can happen during a race, especially on a hot, hilly course in Atlanta, anything could happen. So it definitely puts her in the mix. We shall see. All right, but we're rooting for her. I'm rooting for her and her team in general, NAZ Elite, yes. Ben Rosario. I think they're doing really good work there, and I think there are even more breakthroughs coming from that group. You've got Stephanie Bruce, who's Kellen, Kellen's teammate, 
who ran in London. We talked about her result earlier in London this year. She didn't quite get what she wanted there, but I think she's got to be due for a similar breakthrough because I think her and Kellen are, are training side by side there in Flagstaff. So we'll see. Now we do, we do have Stephanie Bruce competing at USA's in the 10K. So we'll be, we'll be talking about that on a separate episode. All right, so that's our intro topics. Quickly now, let's tee up this discussion with Jay Dishery. This guy and his first book, Anatomy of Runners, basically as a coach, that was sort of a a mind-opening, mind-blowing read that really taught me some things about mobility, stretching, strength, how the body works, running form, biomechanics, and so forth. Lots of different things that you know, might have some mythology around them. You know, he set the record straight in that book. And so that's a good one. We've also read Running Rewired, his newest book, which is a little bit more of a practical guide. Both amazing. By training, Jay is a master's in physical therapy, currently practices that in Bend, Oregon, up in the Northwest there in Oregon. And, and you know, he's just an expert on biomechanics, on how injury works in runners. This is a guy who's watching, videotaping, measuring, running form, basically all day, every day, whether in his job seeing patients as a physical therapist or as a scientist who's constantly doing research on running form and how running shoes impact running form and so many different things. So he's just an expert on form, strength, stretching, mobility, biomechanics, etc. We're super excited to have him on. I know you've been basically pitching his running rewired book to all of your athletes, Steve, as a, a must have almost required reading for being on team rogue nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I think he, he's the game changer in my opinion. It's the one, you know, we've had locally, um, we're hoping to get the folks from um, Mondo sports on our podcast next after this one and you know the the guru over there is um mr peter croon who's been around for a long long time and uh when i first read this book it brought to mind so many things that peter had been telling me over the years as long as i've known peter and it, it coalesced with a lot of things that they do at mondo and uh and it made me realize that uh you know strength trainers don't really necessarily know exactly what they're talking about many pts don't know what they talk they're talking about most doctors don't know what they're talking about when it comes to what a runner needs to do to put one foot in front of the other and to take to get put one foot of that foot in the other over a long-term period and stay healthy to say nothing of taking it to the next level and creating great performances what you need is someone like jd sheree who really has just written that first book it's a tough read chris it's not easy but it basically just lays down the basic law for what it takes to be a great runner and what you need to do. And the first law is know your body, which of course resonates with the things you've, that people have heard me talk about on this podcast all the time. When I got the chance to meet Jay, he also has, is a great raconteur. He can talk. He can talk about his subject immensely. He knows so many people and so many things. Um, and then Chris, when the running rewired book came out, that was a game changer because it's basically the blueprint that book you could take to your gym. 
lay it down on the ground and work through the exercises. It's crazy. Um, they're very different books. And we got a lot of great information from Jay in this podcast, Chris. This interview was one of our best, in my opinion, primarily because our guest was one of the best we've had. So I think our listeners are in for a treat here. This may be one that people need to listen to multiple times because there's a lot of stuff that he talks about, a lot of deep nuggets down in there that you're going to need to go work on to glean. He repeats a few things. But Chris, there's a lot of great stuff in there. My jaw was dropped the entire time he was talking um, because he gave so much great information. Yeah, it's definitely dense. So I recommend a pen and paper and and taking notes in this one. But we'll get we'll get started and jump right in with Jay. So here we go. All right, welcome Jay Dishery to the show. How's it going, Jay? It's great. Glad to be here, guys. How is summer treating you so far in the Great Northwest? Uh, our summer is hilarious. We just did a uh, kickoff camping trip because school just got out here, and it uh, was sunny, rainy, snowy, uh, and then we had three inches of hail one day. So it was hilarious. <laughs> I was in a, I was in a puffy jacket more than I was in uh, shorts, but you know it's it's all good. Hilarious. All four seasons to kick off summer. I love it. Yep. <laughs> that's that's well. That place. that sounds that sounds amazing. I'm, I'm quite yeah. jealous. All right, so we I wanted to jump in and, and we're going to get to topics from both of your books, Anatomy of Runners as well as Running Rewired, your newest one. But I want to start with some sort of foundational pieces so that our listeners can understand really the core problem, so to speak, that we're trying to solve with these books, which is that and when you run, there are forces that impact your body and our ability to manage and dissipate those forces or in some cases potentially use those forces really affects how we run and how we might deal with or encounter injury. So I wanted to kind of talk, start with just some foundational pieces. Give us a picture of what what forces are we dealing with as runners? Sure. And let me just put a little Fun story, well, not fun story, sad story to start this off. I mean, uh, this, ha- this is this is my world, right? I mean, I have to pick up the pieces every day uh, of, of people just, you know, thinking that they're, you know, fixing their body one way and, and the reality it's not. I mean, yesterday I, I, I walked in the room, my, my evaluation was a, a high, local high school runner who uh, had a stress fracture last year and has been having uh, inner uh, tibia and she's been having uh, chronic you know, pain in her shin for, you know, over a year and a half, right? That's kind of, she able to run for a few months and then she gets hurt, she has to take off and, you know, her coach is frustrated, she's frustrated, her doctor is frustrated. And, you know, the reality is all she does is, you know, she runs herself on the ground, she gets hurt, and then she, quote, rests by cross-training on the bike for 90 minutes a day, doing either uh, 90 minutes on the, on the bike or 90 minutes in the Stairmaster. And, you know, the reality is all that cardio work is not doing anything to help her biomechanics. And, and so when you say what kind of forces, I think that's the key thing to understand is that, you know, I, I love runners who are motivated and I love runners who are super, you know, want, want to maintain fitness. But maintaining fitness is not going to fix the reality that you have to face as a runner, right? And, and so that reality, that's the biomechanics. I think that, that's the buy-in why I, I hope the listeners kind of understand, you know, what, why is this relevant to me? I, I just want to run and, and I just want you to run too. But, you know, most folks are showing up with a body that's not ready to run, okay? Um, and so we talk about the mechanics of running, you know, 
Yeah, I always tell people that the non-negotiable is you have to be able to support a great deal of load, right? So um, if you're standing on, on just body weight on both legs, uh, that's half your body weight in each leg. If you stand body weight on one leg, it's one time body weight. Uh, and the, the load that you see, uh, that your body sees when you run is about two and a half or three times body weight each and every stride, right, on one leg, okay? And that happens, you know, thousands and thousands of times a run. And so when you start to think about that, like that's how much I have to, you know, absorb, stand, you know, with my tendons, ligaments, muscles, uh, connective tissues, et cetera, th that's asking a lot of your body. And, and it's just important to make sure that your body's ready and willing and able to withstand that load. Um, because we want to make sure you're a robust runner that can train consistently day in, day out and not have these, you know, kind of again, periods of spurts and, and, and rest kind of built in, uh, you know, with it, without your <laughs> unwilling with it within your season. You need to be an athlete, basically an right. athlete first. <laughs> I mean, I, I love that your website is an athlete's body because that's really what it's all about is you need to be an athlete first. And sometimes as runners, we forget that part of it. We become very one-dimensional or two-dimensional, depending on how you want to look at it. So let's talk biomechanics for a second. You know, that's a big part of what you talk about in, in your first book, Anatomy of Runners, where you talk about a lot on running form and biomechanics. And you're an expert in this field. You've probably videotaped, what, thousands of runners and their form and, and used force plates to kind of analyze everything. So let's talk running form. What are the key components of form, what are the cues that you think matter? That's a big question. <laughs> yes. So, okay. Uh, yeah. So and then let me just, you know, put this out there. Uh, there's no, you know, despite what you've heard, there's no one size for everybody. Uh, as far as, you know, the, the right way to run, uh, people always say, you know, how should I run? And I tell everybody the same answer. I don't have a clue. Uh, until I learn more about you, okay? Uh, and learning more about you comes into the, you know, how much motion do you have? How well do you control your motion? How strong are you? Uh, you know, where are you in your training goals with the type of, uh, you know, program you're designing? Um, what your uh, anatomical alignment looks like as far as the twist in your uh, hips and your and your uh, shins, uh, dealing with the toe in or toe out or, or straight ahead position of your leg. So there's a number of things in that piece um, that, that are important to look at. But, um, I think if you had to kind of still run mechanics into kind of, you know, some simple terms here, right? Um, we want to keep the stress per stride, right? The load that your body sees as low as possible. And we want to make sure that your, uh, your running form uh, is efficient as possible. Uh, and we want to make sure that you're as symmetric as possible. Um, now, those are kind of three sort of rules we have to deal with. And then to, to do that, right? Um, again, you can break it up into, you know, how much that is, you know, I'm not showing up ready to run, right, versus a form problem. Let me just break that down for a second. So when you talk about running, one of the things you have to deal with is like, uh, you know, again, we talk about vertical forces, right? You have to deal with acceleration and braking forces. You have to deal with side-to-side uh, -side forces and then twisting forces, right? Uh, and, and quite often, um, if you see runners, you know, kind of quote, what some people term as running drunk, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of wobble side to side uh, or a lot of, you know, the, the knee dives in or whatever, most of the time, those are, and I'm not saying those can't respond to cues because they can, but most of the time, those issues can be fixed by fixing your stability, right? Learning how mm -hmm. to control the twist in your hip, learning how to control the foundation within your foot. 
Um, so that, that kind of requires, you know, taking extra time to, you know, take care of your body. Um, contrast that with something like, you know, runners who overstride. Um, quite simply, that can be fixed a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times with some cues to get the runner to contact closer to their, uh, to the, to their body, to, closer to their center mass. Um, but then also time is confounding variables, right? So you may have a runner um, who contacts uh, very far in front of them because they don't have enough hip extension. And to run a certain speed requires you have a certain stride length. And so when you say run faster, that runner, the only way they can get more stride length is to reach further out in front of them. So for that runner, you may have to go in and actually open up blocks from the hips, the ankles, the big toe to, to help them get the leg further back behind them or perhaps train their body to be able to drive better off the hip to, uh, to get more hip extension. Um, again, contrast that with the, with the wobble we talked about, right? Sometimes runners might have good stability, uh, but they don't know how to get there, right? So a lot of the times I use a cue, I'll tell people, you know, your kneecaps are flashlights, one's yellow, one's blue, uh, don't cross your beams and make green, right? That might be enough to get hmm. people to sort of figure out how to use their mechanics when they run to, to keep things a little more straight ahead. So I think that's a big thing when you deal with mechanics is it's, it's the mechanics of your body as well as the mechanics of your gait that really kind of come together and, and you know, deliver that running, you know, that running form of just who you are. So much is made of, at least in certain circles, foot strike when it comes to running form. And you know, there are other circles that might emphasize other parts of running form as being the thing that matters. So, and well, well, let's just start with foot strike. Why is it not that simple? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, because of the media. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I think that, uh the whole barefoot running revolution, I think, taught a ton of people a lot. Uh, and the media wants to distill things down and make it as simple as possible and say, hey, if everybody lands in their forefoot, you're great, right? And, and the reality is uh, that's not true. Uh, most runners who say they're forefoot runners aren't really forefoot runners. Um, people change where they contact in their foot during a run, right? People get tired, so you change your contact position sometimes. Um, you also run on different surfaces. You know, you may be more forefoot uh going, you know, downhill, but, you know, going uphill, you may change form. You may change your form on trail versus road versus asphalt versus grass. So um, I, I personally uh, have not found foot strike to be a very effective uh, cue to change runners. Um, the research doesn't support that changing foot strike alone is a very uh, effective cue to, to solve a lot of the problems at runners. Uh, I think that when you get into, you know, how do you make the stress of running easier? Uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, again, laying the forefoot unloads your knees and it does. Okay. Um, but the reality is it costs a whole heck of a lot more work for the muscles around your ankle, uh, to sort of dampen that. It's like, unless you're trying to add a shock absorber to your car, right? So, so you're adding another joint, uh, to the equation, you know, you, you typically the knee absorbs a lot of the impact load. Uh, and then you're asking, uh, the ankle to take a lot more as well, which again, that may not be a bad strategy for everybody, right? If you're, if you're a, you know, and I see this all the time, right? I'm a 65 year old runner and uh, I've been running my entire life. And, you know, my doctor, you know, cringes when he looks at my x-rays and MRIs at my knees, they look horrible. You know, I'm hobbling. I love to be able to keep running, you know, two or three miles a day, the rest of my life. Uh, you know, in those situations, we have to unload the knee, right? Uh, and so, you know, running what I call the, the fairy prancer, um, which is, you know, a very overly exaggerated uh, forefoot strike might be a very effective option for that person, right? Because their knee joints cannot, they're not capable of doing what they need to do. Um, but 
you know, it always costs more energy to run that way. Um, so you have to balance, uh, you know, again, the body stress with what the energy demand is. So um, I, I, I'm not saying foot strike can't be the answer sometimes in, in rare situations, but for most folks listening to the show, if you just, you know, please don't take the idea that, oh, just, just land them away in the foot because it's not going to be able to be maintained. Um, the, the one little golden rule I will say, which has kind of played out over the years, is um, don't worry so much about whether you contact on your rear foot, your midfoot, or your forefoot. Rather, focus on contacting as close to your body as you can for a given speed. All right, let me kind of break that down for a second. Um, when you run, your leg has to swing in front of you and then swing back behind you, kind of like a pendulum on a grandfather clock. And, uh, and when that pendulum gets too far in front of you, again, don't worry about where you contact your foot, right? Forefoot, rear foot, or midfoot. Just think about where, where your foot is. If your foot contacts very far in front of you, uh, that really increases a bunch of the, uh, the, the loading rate, which is the impact force that we see. Uh, it increases the joint torques so or the, the work around the joints, especially at the knee, uh, which is where most people have problems. Uh, and so if you can bring that foot placement closer to the body, uh, you cannot land underneath your body, like you've all heard, that that's impossible unless you're accelerating or sprinting. Um, but if you land as close to as you, your body as you can, uh, what happens is you minimize that jolt, that impact when you land, and you uh, you, you unload the, the mechanics around the knee greatly. Um, so th th that that is a rule of thumb, which I think everybody should sort of focus on, is, is to, you know, stop and overstride, right? To contact close to the body, and then uh, at the same time, let that foot kind of, again, push back behind the body uh, evenly so that you've got a nice uh, symmetric stride. This brings up a question that I've always thought about, Jay, that um, so many of the athletes that we coach and many of the listeners on this of this podcast, they're kind of focused on the marathon distance specifically, and it's very hard to get them to consider doing work at 5k pace or 10k pace we build it into our plan but everyone always seems to think well that doesn't that won't help me can you talk a little bit about what a variety of paces and the using a variety of paces and even strides or short faster runs do for mechanics and what positives there might be there and then also what dangers there might be there yeah you absolutely must train different strides and different speeds <laughs> kudos <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think that, you know, th there is this idea that it, it just kind of drives me crazy. And I think it gets into the fact that we have more older runners out there who are looking to push themselves and achieve goals. And I, I love this. I, lo I love motivated runners with great goals. But, you know, the, the tendency is, you know, oh, I'm getting older. I'm not as fast as I once was. I'll just go longer, right? Um, and, and, you know, I'll just grit my teeth and push longer because, you know, I've become stubborn and more robust and I can tolerate, you know, the pain. And th that's the wrong mindset to have. Um, every single athlete who's successful trains quality, period, across the board in any sport. Uh, and, and I think that if you just basically go with the mindset of, oh, I'll just train marathon pace every day, um, you're training one energy system. Um, good luck <laughs> that, that you're, you're, you're never going to have the same outcomes as you would is if you train your body physiology comprehensively, you have to learn how to be a more efficient aerobic engine, uh, utilizing free fatty acids, use a lot of things, um, you know, build, uh, bigger capillary densities, so you have more blood flow to working tissue, you have to get better mitochondrial volume, which are all things you get at lower intensity, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also mandatory to work on uh, higher end uh, ph uh, physiology training, right? To really get those aerob aerobic and aerobic enzymes uh, to work together, right? Uh, to improve your buffering capacity, right? I mean, these are, if you want to just survive a marathon, that's one thing. If you want to do well and achieve your goals, that's a different discussion, right? And it requires 
well-planned periodized training um, for the physiology side and for the biomechanics side. And the reason why biomechanics side is important is because you have to train your body to, to be able to move, right? <laughs> I think you know, we kind of get stuck in a rut of this kind of short shuffling gait sometimes, and you have to learn to open your hips. You have to learn to challenge your postural control. You have to learn to change your arm swing, right? I mean, those mechanics, people, most people tend to run better when they run faster, actually, okay? Um, and, and so it, it just ma- makes you pay attention to your form, and it's actually pretty fun. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, please break out of the shell of trying to just, you know, stay at one pace. I love it. One of the things that I learned in your Anatomy for Runners book is sort of this idea that from a biomechanical standpoint, a lot of us, you know, that maybe don't like speed or haven't done as much of that and come, come, have come to runner running later in life have serious issues with mobility. And so, you know, your book talks a little bit about the difference between flexibility and mobility and you know how both elements could be important for different people depending on their starting points but talk about that concept of mobility and flexibility and how it relates to how you move through space yeah so let's just sort of use sorry so um Nobody I've ever met has had a problem bringing a leg in front of them when they run, right? We all have enough motion to bend our hip, our knee, and our, and our, and our foot, and our, uh, and our ankle to get our leg in front of us. Um, but when it, talks, when it comes to that, you know, we talked about landing close to the body, the leg has to be able to swing back behind the body, right? So go back to that example I was talking about with the clock pendulum, the leg swinging forward, the leg swinging back. So to get your leg back behind your body, you have to have three things. You have to have hip extension, Okay. Uh, you have to have ankle dorsiflexion, so the ability to bring your shin, uh, your, your foot up to your shin, and you have to have big toe dorsiflexion, the ability to bring your big toe up towards the top of the foot. Uh, and if you can't do that, okay, um, then what happens is that ability to swing your leg back behind you is compromised, right? Um, those joints are, are if, if that motion is not there, you won't be able to let that leg come back behind you, and so you're going to be faced with a few, 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 you know, get it workarounds, right? Either you're going to not extend the leg, so you're going to be forced into an overstride. We've talked about why that's not good. Um, or you'll start to add in rotation, right? And so one of the examples I always use is if you're you know, walking, running, driving a car, riding a bike, whatever, down the road, and you get to an intersection, you know, whether it's a stop sign or whatever, you can just go straight through it, right? There's, there's nothing impeding your path. Um, if you get to a roundabout, okay, you can go still forward, but you have to introduce rotation in your path to get around the roundabout, right? There's a motion block there. And that's why I want us to think about those restrictions in ankle and hip and, and big toe motion. If you can't roll straight through, you're forced to introduce rotation to your path. And the problem with introducing rotation to your path is that's going to add one more element of instability into your gait. It's going to push you side to side to increase the wobble or something, right? So it's going to change the demand that you have as a runner. So that's why it's important to have the motion. Now, to get the motion... You have to figure out why why is there a block, right? So let's use an, an ankle because it's, it's pretty simple here to talk about this. Um, you may have a block in uh, your ankle range because the joint won't move, okay? That's an I'd say ankle joint roll and glide problem, okay? That's not fixed by stretching. And in fact, stretching usually just makes this hurt more, okay? Because it's almost like you're jamming the, the ankle itself when you try and stretch it. Um, that needs to be fixed by manual therapy and you know, kind of joint work to get the joint to glide. It may be limited because your calves are tight, 
okay? Uh, and, and by tight, I mean a short calf muscle or a short Achilles complex. And that improves by stretching, which is not five or 10 seconds stretching, but static stretching to increase tissue length, okay? That requires uh, stretching about three to five, uh, about three minutes per body part, right? Uh, daily until the tissue length increases. Uh, it may be due to uh, just kind of, again, what we talk about, you know, kind of the, the soft tissue mobility or soft tissue perception problem where runners just tend to have stiff calves, right? Um, and that was, that's your foam rolling and lacrosse ball and trigger point ball work. Um, or it may be uh, due to just a perception issue, which not knowing how to find and, and feel uh, mechanics because you tend to just, you know, move stiffly, right? Which is more kind of, you know, hit some dynamic warm up for, you know, two minutes. All of a sudden you feel like your ankles move great. That's not a problem with the joint. That's not a problem with stretching. You just had to kind of wake your body up and go, oh, feel some motion and start to use it. So I think one of the key things is there is to find out why you're limited uh, and then find out the right intervention to improve that mobility. And, and, and that's the way to, to fix these things. That's awesome. You know, we talk a lot about getting our athletes to, you know, we, we, sec- we recommend a lot of strength work, some stretch work, lots of work with trigger point with you know, body manual therapy and learning how to do it yourself, but also having a massage therapist. Talk a little bit about, I know you live in um, one of the trail meccas of the world um, in Bend, Oregon. Talk a little bit about what trail running can do for that proprioception. I find many athletes that I've worked with, when they have that problem of proprioception, I just put them for little short periods of time on a trail because you have to learn that lesson really quickly on a trail, don't you? Yeah, and this is a, this is a great point. I, I think I, mean, I think trail running is great for for a number of reasons. Um, but you know, one of the first things which you know people typically think that trail is better because it's softer, right? Oh, yeah, and yeah, right. you know, so <laughs> rocks aren't soft; <laughs> they wreck you pretty hard. <laughs> and, and and so you know, I think that one of the things is that, you know, yes, there's there's you know parts of the trail that might be soft and loamy, right? There's parts that might be dusty and loose. There's parts that are sandy and wiggly and there are parts that are harder with rocks and there are parts that are harder with roots. So, you know, I think one of the things is that we miss out on, it's not just the fact the trail is softer, it's trail running is more variable, right? And, you know, if you look at survival of species, <laughs> you know, a, a, any animal that has one way of doing something, if, the, if there's an obstacle in your path, you can't do that one way, you're going to fail and you're going to die off and become extinct. You know, so um, if you look at, you know, species that survive, they have multiple ways of success, right? Or multiple ways of achieving success. And, you know, what trail running teaches you is to induce some variability into your stride, right? And I think that that is, is the key reason why trail running produces runners who can run a little bit more robustly and a little bit more long-term because you're forced to move suddenly different every time. So your body's sort of getting a little bit different stress each and every stride instead of the same thing over and over again on, on the blacktop. So um, I, I think trail running is absolutely instrumental, and I always encourage runners to put as much proportion of their mileage uh, on a trail as they can. Can, especially in the long aerobic type sessions, uh, just with the caveat that, uh, you know, again, it's not because of the impact, uh, you know, lessening. It's because of the fact that you're letting your body move a little more naturally, a little more dynamically. And that's the key thing. It's like you said before, be athletic. It's a little bit more athletic way to run versus the same thing over and over again. It also tends to be a full body workout. <laughs> I yeah. know I did a trail workout re- or a trail race recently after not having done it. And my the next day my upper body was probably as sore as my as my lower body because again working all movements can we go back to flexibility for a second 
like and I'm talking pure flexibility in this case, you know, you referenced this idea of having to do three to five minute stretches to actually see a real improvement in that. So can we first unpack the question of does stretching help runners? And then secondly, talk about like real flexibility improvement as you reference and why it takes so long to to actually generate changes there? That's a great question. Yeah. So um, let's, yeah, that first part is unpacked is flexibility uh, help runners. And, and uh, again, if you look at my work, if you look at others' work, uh, there is no justification that more flexibility that you need to run helps you uh, run better, recover faster, increase blood flow, all this stupid stuff that you hear every day, cleanse toxins out your body, right? It just doesn't happen. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, you need to have enough range of motion to move for your running stride and that's it. Okay. Um, you know, we're trying to build robust, dynamic running athletes. My goal is not to get you in Cirque du Soleil, right? Those are two totally different goals. So if you're a runner who also loves to do a bunch of gymnastics work, your demands are different. Okay. But if you're the most folks out there who are not looking to be in Cirque du Soleil, um, if, if you know, you want to be, survive, you have to have enough motion. Right. Um, and, and so that, you know, uh, I don't think you'll find anybody who, with a brain who really disagree with that statement because there's just not research to show that stretching actually helps you uh, in any way. And in fact, there's research to show that you know stretching prior to uh, to you know physiologic exercise in a number of different capacities actually hurts your performance because you're literally ripping your tissues apart, right? Um, so that's part one. <laughs> and but let, let's use that same kind of visual I hope you just had of ripping tissues apart. Because that's what static stretching is, right? You're literally trying to take tissues that are shorter, right? And you're ripping them, right? So take your shirt you're wearing right now and go ahead and pull it a little bit and then release it. And it'll go right back to where it was, right? And so what happens is you just took your tissues. I'm going to get a little techie here, but there's through like what we call the elastic deformation range, right? You put a little stress to lengthen the shirt and you let go and the shirt kind of bounced right back to where it was. Does that make sense? So the, the amount of load you gave the tissue wasn't enough to cause a permanent change. Okay. Um, let's now go take that same shirt and you're going to basically pull and pull and pull and pull for a long time. Okay. Um, like minutes and with it, with a decent amount of force. And after that time, if you basically let go, the shirt becomes a little bit saggy, right? And so what happened is you actually increased the length of that tissue by elongating it to a point where the fibers actually stretched. And that's static stretching. Okay, so um, if you're somebody who's got limited range of motion in the psoas and the, and the iliacus, erectus femoris around the hip, in the gastroxoleus uh, around the, which is the, the calf muscles in the back of the leg, uh, or the, um, the plantar fascia and the intrinsic muscles in the foot, um, that will, you know, you need to have some type of stretching element built in to elongate those tissues. And the reality is to increase tissue length takes time, right? And the dosage that showed up in the literature, the dosage we've used for our research studies is, um, you know, making sure that the, the dosage you're giving to your body actually is enough to elongate tissue. And that requires about three minutes of stretching done five to six days a week for about 10 to 12 weeks before you actually see a measurable increase in muscle fiber length. And people don't like when I say this. It's not my fault. It's just the reality that we see and how our body adapts. Now, let me just, some people are saying, wait a second, that's BS because, you know, I just did this little dynamic hip opener uh, for, you know, 10 seconds and I feel great. And if that's you, 
that means you don't have a soft tissue length problem, right? Um, you know, if you're the kind of person who's you're sitting at a desk all day and you do, you know, a few hip windmills or the world's greatest stretch or a few just things in my books, right? You know, for for five seconds and you feel great, that's awesome. Those are dynamic warm-ups, which is basically teaching your body to chill out and you know stop fighting itself and letting you use the range of motion that you have. That's not a soft tissue length problem. But if you're the kind of person who, when we look at you on an exam table, uh, you know, I'm looking at, you know, can you extend your hip? Uh, and your hip is up in you know 15 to 20 degrees of flexion when it needs to be in 20 degrees of extension, that requires some static work, right? So, um, you know, the important thing is to differentiate, do you need to stretch? And if so, you should stretch until you achieve the range of motion you need to run, and then you should stop stretching, right? Um, and then we should just use that range of motion we're getting uh, by, you know, by running, okay, with proper, with proper mechanics, uh, and by doing some, you know, simple dynamic stretches pre-run, which will, you know, take a few minutes just to get your body to kind of wake up and, and use all that range. You talk about it in your first book, Anatomy of Runners, you have different assessments that people can do as, and you also have assessments in your second book as well, but how do, how do they know? I mean, what do you, what do you do to find out if, if I need to stretch? Yeah, so I think just, you just basically take yourself through movements and you find out what's blocked, right? So, um, I mean, I've got stuff in that for runners. I also did a, a project with Saucony uh, a few years ago called the, the Saucony Stride Lab, and it's a totally free app. Um, it's, it is iOS only, but if, you've, if, if you're wondering, like, gee, where do I fall in? Please go get this app. It's totally free, uh, and it walks you through a, a self-assessment using your phone, using uh, you know range of motion uh, tests and using stability tests, and that you can actually sort of it scores you on different things and give you gives you a whole prescriptive plan. So if you're kind of person who like just you know look, I just need some help on some simple things, please do that. It's totally free. Um, yes, it takes 20 minutes to go through the assessment. Um, you know, if you want an answer out of life, be willing to put some work in. Right, that's a reality. So, uh, but it, it will take some time, but it's super helpful um the, the the tests anatomy for runners are super helpful i've got some tests built in uh running rewired so um i think the key thing is you know if you want an answer you got to put some type of assessment method in um if you don't trust yourself and you're confused go see a professional right i mean go, go see a pt who you know who understands running go see you know if there's a personal trainer area who kind of has, has got his reputation you know find somebody who you trust and can kind of you know bounce some ideas off of but you know if you're the kind of person who goes where do i fall in this situation there's a bunch of things out there from getting one-on-one help to some simple free tests and and some books in the middle so uh, you, you need to find out what you need to do and the answer is not one size fits all for everybody jay I, I've owned your first book, Anatomy for Runners, and I think since it first came out. And then I actually pre-ordered your Running Rewired, and we've talked about it a number of times on this podcast. So I think we've got a lot of listeners that are really excited about hearing about about what you're doing. And already it's been a pretty amazing podcast. But can you give us sort of a, sort of a short rundown for that person who doesn't have either of your books of where you came up with the idea of doing the first book? what the differences between the two books are, what kind of similarities they have and sort of where your journey came with that. That might help people also kind of know where to start with your books on how to add them into their um, day-to-day regimen. Sure. So Runner Wired Wired and Anatomy for Runners are two very different books. Um, Anatomy for Runners was basically the result of my frustration with uh, the current state of the world a few years ago. So, um, you know, we we had this kind of old school running lore, which was, you know, everybody must land, heel and roll through a toe. Everyone must, you know, suffer through a bunch of... uh, you know, volume and, and that's it, right? It's the, you know, where we were 20 years ago, mentality training wise. 
Um, and, uh, you know, again, that, that's not helped decrease running injury rates. I mean, you know, you, 80 runners, uh, 80% of runners get hurt. 50% of runners get hurt every single year. And, uh, you know, there's been a bunch of running research done uh, over the years and it's all, you know, dorks like me in a, in a lab measuring things. And, you know, that work sits into, you know, goes into a journal study and sits there and nobody hears about it except for the random time that, you know, New York times covers something. Right. So, um, you know, that, that work was trying, I for runners was trying to put a body of knowledge out there that was digestible um, by uh, by a few, a few different groups, right? So it's trying to put running mechanics in a form for clinicians because um, unfortunately, you know, when you go to a PT school or med school or chiropractor school, or whatever, you have a ton to learn to become a general practitioner, uh, and you do extraordinarily little, if not anything, um, in terms of running gait. Uh, and so, you know, even though you've got clinicians who love to run you don't really get a bunch of, uh, you know, running uh, education in school. So it was to help them take the knowledge base they've got and apply that to running. Um, coaches uh, receive little to none uh, as far as, you know, volume of biomechanics uh, running. And so, you know, they're the first point of contact, right? If a runner gets hurt, what do they do? They ask their coach, coach, my you know, my shin hurts, my big toe hurts, my hip hurts, whatever, what should I do? And and again, these are great, awesome people. I love coaches to death, but they have been given the body of knowledge to understand what to do there, right? So um, it was try to help them have some answers. Uh, and then for the super motivated, you know, type A runners who really want to know, want to get serious, um, you know, again, that book is not light summer reading. It's not beach time reading. Uh, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's heavy, but I try to take some of the the you know the in, the depth of the literature out there and make it something that's accessible uh, to understand you know some things as far as why you may want to make some changes in the way you move why you may want to make some changes in your stride uh, and, and talk about the mechanics of how those things work to really answer some answers and not just put opinions out there because that's not that's not the goal of my book the goal of the book was to really put answers out not just opinions um, and I feel like that book still sort of stands alone uh, in its term uh, in its kind of position on the bookshelf um, there's not anything else around there like it um, it, it is in depth, and if you want answers, that book has answers. Um, and, and so that, that's kind of anatomy for us in a nutshell. Um, and I know it wasn't a two second blur, but it's not a two second book. Um, Running Rewired has a much different flavor, right? So Running Rewired was to take all those concepts and make it something much more mainstream that anybody could read. Uh, you, know, you don't have to be that, you know, again, clinician or coach or super tech savvy runner. Um, it's, it's a much more uh, digestible way of approaching, you know, how do I make my body better? And, and while we definitely have some form, uh, form tips in there for sure that I think are pretty powerful, um, one of the big things is that, you know, I mentioned before, if you're that runner who's got the excess wobble or, you know, whatever, a lot of times it's not running form problems. It's what, what body you're bringing to the table. And so um, that book is targeted around two main goals. One is to help you clean up your mechanics. And I term that as moving with precision, right? So the idea that running, you know, with more volume or less volume is not going to change a rotational collapse at your hip. It's not going to change the fact that you're mid-back stiff. It's not going to change the fact that your foot is out of control. So how do you break those ter- break those issues down and sort of fix those problems? Um, but the other piece is that that anatomy foreigners didn't have it built into it is people said, okay, look, like I'm actually feeling pretty good, right? So what should I do to run better, right? Not just to get out of my pain, but how do I truly become a better athlete? And so, you know, there's a right way to uh, program or schedule uh, your strength and plyometric training. Um, and, and that book really gets into, you know, what are some effective types of programs to help me apply more force down to the ground? 
because the literature is really really clear on this. Uh, when you apply more force down to the ground, you tend to get a longer stride length, right? And you tend to actually run more efficiently at the same perceived effort. So uh, we've got some very digestible, applicable, like, yeah, read the book, practice the movements, execute them, boom, right? We have some plans built in there to actually train your body uh, to run more efficiently, right? To train your body to control the, the rotational stresses that we see, to train your body to learn to drive from the hips and less from the knees, to train your body um, to, uh, to, to have a more optimal, uh, you know, propulsive stride. So I think that book really gets into some some more simple, actionable uh, things people can do, uh, and it's a great resource. And you know, it's there's a bunch of content in there, uh, which I, I really hope runners understand because I, I'm a big fan of education. I think once you understand why you're doing something, you tend to stick with it. Um, but if you're the kind of runner who's like, "Hey, just tell me what to do," well, guess what? That, that's built in there, right? Um, and we talk about you know breaking workouts into precision movements to again, move better and clean up mechanics and then performance movements to really become a more efficient, more, uh, more dynamic athlete, uh, for, for better running economy. I think that that's the, the, those two books together can solve a lot of problems, but I think even on their own, they, they really give you a lot of bang for your buck. Yeah, we agree. I tell people anatomy to runners is the science book. Running rewired is more the practical guide and, and yep. you get great things from both. In Running Rewired, you talk about four running skills, and I wanted to sort of get you get your you know free form discussion on those four skills. You talked about postural control, rotational stability, hip dominance, which you just referenced, and skeletal alignment. So take us through those four things and why they matter so much. Yeah, so um, the, the idea behind don't break the pivot point is 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 all about postural control. You know, I think that uh, I think I mean the the vast majority of runners I see. Uh, let me back up. The vast majority of patients I see. This is a people problem, not just a running problem. Um, tend to stand and, and run and walk and move and jump, etc. Um, you know, really breaking their lumbar spine position. Right, they tend to arch their back a whole lot when they should be moving their hip. Um, it drives me crazy to no end to go in, in a weight room and see people doing, you know, deadlifts and squats, et cetera. At the top of their movement, you know, what they do is they arch their back to kind of rest between reps. Um, you know, it's, it's just, we have this idea behind, you know, letting me, allowing me to use my lumbar spine motion. Um, and, and when you do that, you just basically blow everything. <laughs> um, you, you, you're basically teaching your body to use ineffective positions. Uh, you're teaching your body to uh, break that pot, that, you know, that core stability work you're, you're, most of people are doing. Doing, you're not able to capitalize on it and use it uh, because, again, you kind of change the orientation of your back. And when you break your back position, you shut off your hip muscles, which we're trying to, to, to you know, really help help, uh, help jump on board. So um, in, in terms of what that looks like, right, you know, people always talk about, you know, maintain neutral. And, and you're supposed to have a curve in your back, right? Everybody does. It's called your lumbar lordosis. And, and you're supposed to have a curve and some people have more and some people have less and that's no problem. Um, and you want to move and work with that neutral point, right. And, and move a little bit, right. If you look at good running mechanics, most people, you know, will flex and extend their back in a neighborhood of about maybe five to seven degrees, right. Um, most runners will move their back about 20 degrees when they run. Okay. So, um, you know, that it's a lot of excessive motion. And when you do that, um, you really compromise, um, the, uh, again, the mechanics of your spine. So you can't integrate the core stability work you're doing and you blow your hip control. Um, and so most of us are, you know, tight in our chest and we tend to be rolled forward. And so we fix that by just arching our back more to, you know, make ourselves stand up taller. And that's the wrong way to fix this. So, um, I, I go through a bunch in, in that chapter to help people differentiate between, uh, you know, again, finding neutral, 
opening up restrictions on top of the, what I call the can, right? On top of the can to, to spread the shoulders wide without cheating your back position and learning to swing your hips, you know, open up the motion blocks below the hips to allow you to swing your hips freely without, you know, again, compromising your back position. And uh, it, every single athlete needs to start there, right? If you've not gotten the idea behind find neutral and work your own neutral, you'll never be able to get into, you know, other positions. Um, and the old idea of, you know, lifting the belly button up and in um, doesn't work, right? That, that's tilting your pelvis and tucking it underneath you. You know, if you don't believe me, try and tuck your pelvis under as much as you possibly can and take a big stride. You can't. Your hip motion's gone, right? Try and tuck your belly button, lift it up and in and try and take a big breath. You can't breathe because your, your abdominal muscles are compromising your lung volume. So, you know, that doesn't work. It doesn't translate over to running, right? Um, this isn't just doing core work for core work. It's doing core work that makes sense in running. So you have to find Find out what blocks are screwing me up and uh, find the right muscle movements to get us to, uh, to become stable. So that's kind of posture. And then that posture idea leads us into the kind of the, the twisting idea, right? Um, I'm sorry to just jump right into that, but I take a breath, but they're really linked, okay? Um, so if you're to say, well, okay, well, don't arch and don't, you know, don't tuck, well, what should I do, right? So the reality is um, when you run, there's a lot of counter rotation, okay, between the upper and lower body. We call this the, the twisting moment, right, or the free moment is the, the biomechanical term for this. But um, you can imagine if you've ever seen one of those little pellet drums, which is a little tiny kid's drum that has like two little beads dangling down from the side and has a handle on the bottom. And if you kind of wiggle those back and forth, those little beads kind of go bink, ba bink, ba bink. They kind of bounce back and forth. Most people have seen these at one point in time. Um, and that's a good idea for kind of this like twisting force or kind of reciprocal energy exchange that takes place as you run. Um, and, and that's a healthy model, right? You have to be able to twist and untwist, twist and untwist. And if you took that handle and you kind of cracked it a little bit, right? If you, and, and so when you twisted the, the little drum now, the drum's not going to twist symmetrically, right? It's going to kind of shift as it twists and those beads sort of go all over the place now. Um, and that's a great model for why it's important to be able to train rotation through the core, rotation through the hips and rotation through the foot um, to get your body in a more neutral, kind of more aligned position. Uh, and, and I broke those up into spine and hip and, and foot on purpose because you have to figure out, you know, where that motion block tended tend to break down uh, and how I can move and then how I can stabilize in that range of motion. And, you know, again, running field, people think, wait, this is stupid. I just run forward. And, and yes, you run forward, but your body counter twists as you, as you, as you run. And if you can't control that twist, we tend to see people uh, become much more sloppier as they run. They tend to have a lot of shift laterally if you can't twist. So that's kind of integrated in. And we talk about, you know, again, putting that together back with the core piece, you know, we always train rotational motions and rotational motions are very healthy for the joints. Um, see a lot of uh, improvement in um, your control of your body without putting a lot of stress to your body, right? So that's the whole goal. I want the most possible result for at least, you know, stress on you uh, from a training standpoint. So that's kind of the counter rotation idea. Um, we get into chapter seven, it's talking about push for better propulsion. Um, most runners tend to be uh, very knee or, or quad dominant uh, and tend to not know how to find their hip mechanics very well. And what that results in is a very, uh, what I could describe as a pulling stride versus a pushing stride. Um, and, and the pulling stride tends to overwork the knee muscles and, and overwork the knee joint as well. So again, going back to the idea that you know, most runners listen to this podcast either have knee pain or have had knee pain at some point. Um, you know, if you can uh, learn to, to drive from your hips, what happens is you allow the foot to contact close to the body and you can learn to push back beyond you. 
back behind you uh, more effectively. And that's a, a much more, again, low stress low stress way to run. And also, uh, I think people find when they, when they master this, it really unlocks some gears. And we talked earlier about running different paces. People usually find that, wow, you know, I used to run at, you know, eight, eight minute pace for my easy runs. And all of a sudden my easy runs now, I feel like 745 or even 730. And that's not a fitness change. That's learning how to truly change the mechanics of, of, your, of your running and your, your lessening stress on, on some muscle groups, which aren't very good at, at, uh, at you know, doing that and shifting it to muscle groups, which are better hip muscles, uh, can learn to, you know, can, can, are capable of steering your body better. Uh, they're important for possible control and they're important for, again, a more effective push off, uh, when running. So, uh, that, that chapter is absolutely critical for anybody looking to really improve their running, not just going you know, to become uh, less in more injury resilient, but to truly improve their mechanics. That chapter is essential. Um, and then the fourth chapter, it's kind of funny. I got a lot of pushback from my editor when I want to put this in there because it, it's uh, it requires you to to do some uh, you know some some feeling on your body and, and find some landmarks and look at some things. But um, I cannot tell you how many injuries I see uh, that are caused by people saying, "Hey, point your feet straight when you run." You know. That statement's only true if you happen to have a very straight hip and a very straight shin, right? Those people should point their feet straight when they run. When you go to yoga and your instructor says, you know, come to the front of your mat, point your feet straight ahead. Again, if you happen to be somebody with straight hips and straight shins, then you should do that. But most runners aren't a per, per, aren't built with straight hip, uh, hips and straight shins, right? So um, it's critical to understand, you know, do you do you have anatomical twists built into your uh, to, into your uh, your femur uh, and into your shin, right? And if that's the case, you have to find how your body tracks, and you have to maintain that orientation at mile one and mile, you know, nineteen and whatever else you know you're going to do. So um, it's important to understand how your body's built uh, because if you're trying to make your body move in a way which it can't you're going to blow something apart, right? So um, I, every day I see injuries caused. I mean, literally every single day in my clinic, in my performance clinic, I, I see runners who get hurt just because somebody told them to point their foot a certain direction. So uh, we, I break into, you know, helping runners feel and figure out, you know, why am I built this way or how am I built? And then how should I move to respect that? And that's not just a running problem. Again, that's a, you know, if I, if I tend to have, you know, straight hips and a little bit uh, outward twisted chin, I should stand that way, walk that way, do yoga that way, do strength training that way and run that way, right? That should be, that's the way you move all the time. So it's important to understand sort of where you are within that continuum. So for a second, Jay, that, and that's fascinating stuff, but let's break down just as an example, an example injury where some or all of these things might be coming into play because I think oftentimes, and and I'm going to use shin splints as an example because it's a common issue that people deal with. Oftentimes, runners are looking for simple solutions. If I just, quote, train on soft surfaces, or if I just get a new shoe, or if I just change this one thing that my friend did to make his go away, then my problem will be solved as well. So, but it's obviously more complicated than that because we all have different movement patterns. And there could be a strength issue, there could be a mobility issue, there could be hip stability issues, there could be lots of layers of issues that might be causing that in an individual that may be different from somebody else. So using that example of shin splints, how, do, how, you know, how is that potentially caused and fixed in various types of runners? Yeah, so I'm supposed to be on a whiteboard right now. We can make a little list. <laughs> we'll do this, we'll do this verbally. So that's a great question, right? So yeah, let's talk about that. So um, 
we'll kind of combine all the concepts we put together today. So um, when you run, uh, your ankle needs to roll straight ahead and your foot needs to roll straight across the metatarsals, right? The ball of foot. So if you can move freely, that's great and you need to do that. If you can't, okay, again, I mentioned the idea behind the roundabout earlier, right? If I can't roll straight through, I'm going to be forced to introduce rotational motion. So um, if my ankle is locked, right, if I can't roll straight through my ankle, right, so my foot's down the ground, my shin needs to roll over my foot, if that can't happen, right, it's going to force me to do one of two things. It's either going to force me into a collapsed arch position, right? Um, or it's going to force me out to the outside of the foot uh, and I take my big toe up off the ground. Both those situations will result a little bit differently in how they, they had to work, but both those situations are going to decrease the contribution of your big toe, right? Uh, and your big toe's job is to basically preserve your arch height. And if your arch is not under control, guess what happens? You overwork muscles inside the inside of the shin, which is the posterior tibialis, uh, which is the, the that's the the quote the quote shin splint muscle right so um, the idea here is if you can open up motion let the ankle move smoothly and you can roll through the metatarsals better then you're not going to have something else trying to peel your big toe up off the ground or collapse your arch does that make sense so that, that's a great way to think about the contribution of mobility uh, on 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 injury right. Um, if you look at the mechanics of, again, going back to what I talked about with the big toe control, um, you know, most runners uh, don't know how to use their feet, right? We tend to put socks on, throw a shoe on, and inspect this, you know, this eight and a half to 13 ounce piece of material to control our entire body mass, you know, as we run. You know, shoes certainly make a difference. They can definitely help or kind of, you know, or, or, or hurt um, the way we move. But, uh, you know, good luck with that, you know, with that eight and a half ounce, you know, piece of material controlling your entire body dynamics for long term, right? You have to show up with a foot that knows how to work. Um, and so a foot that knows how to work is a foot that can uh, can use proper big toe control, right? So um, if you just look at your hand for a second, listen to this, um, I want you to look at your fingers. I want you to curl your fingers back and forth. You'll notice that your each finger has three joints in it, right? You have three little knuckles in the finger uh, and you have a thumb, right? And if you uh, look at your thumb, your thumb has two joints in it, right? And biomechanically, they're very different, right? Your fingers grab around something, your thumb locks and opposes. Um, one example I find using all the time is, is imagine using a hammer, right? If we're going to use a hammer to build a house, okay, and I said, hey, we're going to use this hammer, but I'm going to have you grab the hammer only with your fingers. You're going to have to keep your thumb off to the side, right? You're going to drive every nail of the whole house without using your thumb. You can imagine your forearm's going to be jacked and blown to pieces in like an hour, right? Because there's no way that, you know, those muscles around the, around the, the, the fingers are going to be overworked and you're really going to have a ton of, you know, wear and tear in your forearm. Um, if I let you use your thumb and wrap around the shaft, it's much easier to stabilize the hammer, right? When you drive down and hit the nail. So think about your foot in that same way. Your little toes have three joints. Your big toe has two joints. And one of the things we want to make sure we do is not training, you know, towel curls and marble pickups, these non-functional exercises for foot control that deal with curling. That's not going to help you run better. If you're going to run better, you have to learn how to use your foot when your foot's on the ground. And that comes down to learning how to push your big toe down, right? So um, when the big toe works, the muscles around the big toe support the arch height. And if the muscles around the arch work, then guess what? Your shin's under less stress, and then therefore you're a happy runner. So um, 
and I was a little bit wordy, but that's kind of how things work, right? If, if you look at, you know, do I have a, a restriction of range of motion somewhere? It's forcing me to move in an unpreferred way, okay, that's going to increase load of my tissue. Or do I have an issue with stability in certain areas that are causing other tissues to work too hard, right? How do I unload those tissues? It's by fixing you to move better, move the right way. And, and so that's kind of how I approach all, all over these injuries, right? Like more running is not going to fix the fact that you don't know how to use your big toe. More running is not going to make your ankle move better. More running is not going to help you change your posture, right? Taking specific aims to work on these things will make a big difference. So let's talk about Kate Grace for a second. She is quoted on in your book as, as somebody who's you've, who you've worked with, and she highly recommends that work. As an athlete and as a fan, she's, in my opinion, has amazing form, beautiful form. She has a six pack. She, you know, as far as female distance runners in the 800 to 1500 meter range, looks like she has it all together. But an athlete like Kate at the elite level also struggles with injury and has weaknesses or restrictions that need to be dealt with. So, what's an example in something in her form that you've worked with her on that? could provide lessons to an everyday athlete. Yeah. Uh, let, let me just speak in broad terms for a second. First, um, I, I work with a lot of elites around the world and, uh, and every single one of them has problems <laughs> and every single one of them takes time every single day to work on address and improve those problems. And I think it's something I want to make sure everybody hears because we think that we put them up at least up on a pedestal and think, oh, they're biomechanically blessed and, you know, they're, they're wonderful. And that's absolutely not true. Okay. Um, you know, and you may, you'll ask them and say, hey, look, do you take time to work on these things? And the vast majority is like, yep, I have to because you know what? I have to train for X number of miles a week. And if I don't stay on top of these things, I can't train. I can't get better. So um, that's absolutely critical to understand that, you know, don't put people on a pedestal. Everybody has things to work on, myself included, right? <laughs> um, to, to become better. So um, that, just to put that there in, in broad terms. Uh, now, in terms of, I mean, Kate specifically, I mean, I don't get too technical on everybody because I don't want to put, put things out there, but I, w- I would say that there have been a number of things we do uh, dealing with making sure people can maintain good posture alignment under stress, right? And I think it's one of the big things is, you know, a lot of folks will talk about, okay, you know, I, I want to nail my form and, and nailing your form running, you know, at an eight minute pace is different than maintaining form, uh, you know, running quarters in, uh, you know, 54 seconds, right? So um, very different mechanics in terms of, or very different stresses, excuse me, in terms of how your body moves. Uh, but I find that one of the problems is we get tired, right? Via the end of the race or tired uh, at, at speed. You know, again, we tend to kind of, um, you know, have a trouble breathing. So we tend to kind of round our shoulders. We tend to let the back sag into extension. And then from there, I talked about if you blow your posture, everything's screwed up, right? And we tend to see that running at a certain speed now requires more effort, right? It's hard to breathe. It's hard to bring your hips through. Uh, it's harder to achieve propulsion. And that just doesn't work. So um, specifically with Kate, you know, we've worked a lot on making sure that we can maintain good postural alignment at speed and at stress uh, because that's where she's racing. It's where she's competing, right? So um, I think it's important for athletes to know, you know, yeah, how, not just how do I move in a clinic or an exam table, but how can I replicate optimal position under stress, under load, you know, when, I, when I'm challenged. And that's the whole idea is that, you know, if this stuff that you're doing can't ultimately go back and improve your running, then don't do it. 
right? I mean, it, it needs to be something that that's actually going to quote work for you and make you a better runner. And that, that's the things we focus on is how can I, you know, where are you now and how can we work backwards, you know, peel the layers back um, that, that all those blocks that we see and fix all those blocks. So when we look to move forward, you know, make sure all the things we're doing are actually producing a better athlete. Jay, so changing directions just a little bit, what, what can runners learn from golfers? Um, not to follow <laughs> balls around. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think that, um, well, I, I'd say this. I, I'm not going to pinpoint one golfer to say, uh, you know, that one's the best. And I think that's one thing which, which you can learn is that there's not one best golf swing, okay? Um, there's not one best running stride, right? I think that, that's, that's a big thing you can learn from a golfer. Um, I think the other thing you learn from a golfer is that, you know, a, a golf swing is entirely a rotational type motion, right? Um, and, and certainly there's ways to screw up that rotational type motion, which I don't want to get into, but um, uh, if you, you know, rotation is really, really, really important, right? Uh, look at a golf swing, there's twists through the spine, there's twists through the hips, there's twists through the feet just like we talked about in running, right? And so, um, you know, it, we tend to get this idea behind us running forward. And yes, the, the bulk of your body is moving forward. But when you look at what happens, you know, the, the micro motion within your body, there's a lot of twisting dynamic control that's required to produce a good runner. And, uh, and then we really try and make sure that we're going to capitalize on, on, on maximizing and improving the way you move in rotation. To give the listeners some context, Jay is also a certified golf fitness instructor Johnny Miller is famous for saying that Tiger Woods in his peak got where that he got too strong and that it somehow restricted his mobility, which potentially put more stress on his back, which caused perhaps the issues he's dealing with today. Obviously there's no way to know without being his provider yourself, whether or not that's true. But I do think the principle, if that is true at some level is true for runners too, which is that the vanity muscles aren't really helping you a lot. Yeah, so the vanity muscles aren't helping. And the other thing is too is, you know, when you when you train for a performance, this is a really key thing here, right? So if I said, okay, I want to get you stronger, right? So strength is a time independent measure. So we say, can you pick up this 225 pound ball on a deadlift or not, right? Nobody times you for a deadlift. Uh, it's, you know, can you get up and, 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 or not? Um, and it takes about half a second to, to actually generate peak or achieve peak strength or emotion, right? Um, and, and peak strength is very, very important. Um, but what runners lose sight on is the fact of, you know, when you run, you're not in contact with the ground for half a second, right? You're in contact with the ground for certainly a third or less, but most runners in the case about well, 0.18 seconds to about 0.25 seconds per stride, right? And so, What's not important is what that max strength is. What's important is how quickly you can generate your max strength. And so, you know, it's important and critical, I say essential, um, if you want your stuff to, you know, if you, all this extra time you're to put in, you know, it's not just for fitness, it's to improve your running, right? And so those things that translate over, you need to improve what's called the rate of force development, right? And what that means is that whatever strength you can, you, you have, that you need to produce it quickly, Okay. And, in, and it's pretty interesting. You look at, you know, runners who have never walked into a gym before and don't do any strength training. The nice thing is you don't have to stress too much because just by, you know, doing strength training, you'll increase your force, rate of force development anyway. Um, but when it comes to more experienced athletes who, uh, you know, have spent some time in the weight room doing things, um, 
you need to not just lift heavy, right? You need to actually lift, lift powerful at some time. So when we change what we do uh, throughout the course of the season, uh, the right times it's called periodization, right? To make sure that we're producing a better athlete. And so um, that rate of force development it teaches us to produce uh, more force quickly. So, you know, we use lots of different tools here, right? You can use uh, lower weighted movements that we do faster. You can use med ball work. You can do jumping plyometric type work. There's lots of things we do to complement to make sure that we're producing explosive athletes, not just strong athletes. So that's one paradigm. Uh, and again, that second paradigm I went back to, I used that word precision before. You know, a lot of times runners will, uh, runners, but athletes will, will become very strong in terms of certain muscle groups, but they're writing checks that their, you know, other parts of their body can't cash, right? So you may be able to, you know, drive a bunch with your legs on a leg press, but that's not functional, right? You may be able to uh, squat a certain amount, but when you're at the top of your motion, you're letting your back arch every time, right? So that's not functional. If you can't stabilize that weight as you move properly that you're not going to see success and transfer into your running gait so it's important to make sure the quality of motions uh, on point and it's important to make sure that again you're training the right amount of strength the right amount of explosive work to make sure that you're going to see transfers into your gait this is why people need to read your book <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, I agree. <laughs> one, one last question jay i know you're always deep in additional new research trying to learn more and more because you're the type of guy that probably has unquenchable thirst for knowledge on this topic. What are you researching now? What are you excited about? What's some new areas that you're looking into that are interesting? Uh, lots of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're doing some work with uh, generalized um, performance in terms of, uh, you know, how can we, how can we, two big things we're doing right now. One is how can you maximize return to return to running, right? So what types of tests are most indicative of, uh, of, of, you know, building a better N of one better, better individual athlete. Uh, so how can we find out when somebody's ready to go back to running? That's one of the things I'm looking at right now, the big project with one group. Uh, and then, um, the other thing I'm doing, I, I do a ton of footwear, uh, validation and, and innovation work, which is fun because, uh, it gets into, you know, what does footwear really do for us? And then, you know, how do you really match the right shoes with the right, uh, technology, which you right technology within each shoe, uh, it's the right runner. It's, it's, it's a big passion project as well to make sure that we're putting the right stuff on the right people and not just having runners select shoes by uh, color. <laughs> so that's, that's an important line as well. So yeah, I think that, you know, I, I my, my line of work, I typically, you know, I got into doing what I'm doing because I can't stand the old adage, which was if running hurts, don't do it. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, there, there's no truth in that. I think that if running hurts, find out why it's hurting and find out how to make it less painful and how to, you know, how to improve your body so that you can run pain-free. That's the, the answers I'm always looking for is how do I do things better? And, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my job. <laughs> well, we wish we had you for another hour, which means we'll have to have you on again at some point. We really appreciate it. Jay, definitely those listening, get out and check out Jay's books, Anatomy of Runners, as well as Running. We rewired. You will learn something, no doubt, in addition to what we've already talked about today. So thank you, Jay. Great, guys. Thanks for having me. So there you go. Jay Dishery, everyone. Definitely go check out his books. Speaking of books, one final reminder, our first episode of the Endorphin Book Club will be recorded on June 28th with Alex Hutchinson on his book, Endure. If you have questions for Alex, please send those to me via email by the 27th. That email again is chris at roguerunning.com. We'd love to ask lots of direct listener questions, so get those to us by Wednesday if you can. Otherwise, that's it for today's episode. 
As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.